Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Today it will be a double header of two strong and brave Slavic queens, Olga of Kiev, who was a grand princess of Kievian Rus in the 900s and is today a saint of modern Ukraine, and Jadwiga of Poland, a female king in the 1300s. Like any neighbors, Ukraine and Poland have had close but often fraught relations. During the Middle Ages, the monarchies of Poland and the Ruthenian Kingdom had close ties and often intermarried. From the 15 to 1700s, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth controlled much of what is now Ukraine. Both areas were variously conquered and controlled by the Russian and Austrian empires. Those empires dissolved during World War I, making way for the modern nations of Ukraine and Poland to be established in 1917 and 1918, respectively. That year, cultural and political differences led the two new nations to go to war with each other, resulting in a Polish victory. In the 1940s, 100,000 Poles were massacred by Ukrainian nationalists. Despite their history of bad blood, since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, Poland has emerged as one of Ukraine's strongest allies. They have given military aid and harbored thousands of Ukrainian refugees. As the war rages in its second year, let's take a look at the past and recount the tales of two remarkably resilient queens one from Ukraine, and one from Poland. And now, without further ado... Queens of the World Olga of Kiev, Grand Princess and Saint of Ukraine Olga was the wife of Igor, the Grand Prince of Kievian Rus, a federation of people whose capital was the city of Kiev, now the capital of modern-day Ukraine. When her husband was brutally murdered by a subsidiary tribe, Olga went on a legendary campaign of cunning and ruthless revenge. Once in control of her husband's realm, she converted to Christianity in order to get out of an unwanted marriage proposal. She is credited with introducing Christianity to the Rus people. After her death, Olga was canonized as a saint and is regarded as equal to the apostles within the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. 
Like many figures in early history, the dates and details of Olga's early life are shrouded in mystery. Most of what we know of her comes from the Primary Chronicle, or the Tale of Bygone Years, an old East Slavic chronicle compiled in Kyiv around 1113, which freely mixes history with folklore, though Olga does appear in other, more reliable sources. She may have been born as early as 890 or as late as 925. She was most likely of Viking origin and born in the city of Pleskov. Some records suggest that she may have been the daughter of a prince, while others refer to her common birth. She was no more than 15 when she was married to Igor, prince of Kiev. He was the son and heir of Rurik, a Viking who seized control of a number of tribes in the area, collectively known as the Kievian Rus, the modern nations of Ukraine, Belarus, and parts of Western Russia were all once the domain of the Kievian Rus, the name Rus from which both Russia and Belarus derive their names, likely comes from the Old Norse word for men who row, referring to Viking longships. Rurik founded the Rurik dynasty. When he died, his son was only two years old, so he entrusted his realm and his son to his kinsman, Oleg. He further consolidated power in the region, conquered neighboring tribes, and established his capital in Kyiv. The new capital held a strategic location on the Dnieper River, along the trade route between Scandinavia and the Mediterranean Sea. According to legend, Oleg received a prophecy that his horse would cause his death. In an attempt to defy the oracle, he had the stallion sent away. Years later, he inquired what had become of his once faithful mount, only to be told that it had died. He asked to see its remains, and when he looked upon its bones, he felt foolish for having believed in such a prophecy. He kicked the horse's skull jostling a snake which had been coiled inside. It slithered out, bit him, and Oleg died. By this time, Igor was 35 and old enough to rule. He and Olga had one child together, a son, Sviatoslav, who was born when Olga was somewhere between 18 and 53, depending on which source you glean her birth date from. Prince Igor was not a particularly impressive or ingenious ruler. He twice besieged Constantinople, but most of his fleet was destroyed by Greek fire. The Kievian Rus economy was based on the prince collecting tribute in the form of coin, fur, honey, and other goods from the many tribes he ruled over, and then selling the goods on to Constantinople. Igor demanded far more tribute than Oleg or Rurik had. One of the tribes, the Drevlians, refused to pay. The prince led his army to attack the Drevlian capital of Iskorosten, today the city of Korosten in northern Ukraine. Igor won and exacted the tribute he demanded. Their horses loaded down with valuable goods, Igor and his men began to march back to Kiev. But the haughty prince still felt that the Drevlians had been insolent. While most of his army rode ahead, Igor turned back with only a few guards to demand even more tribute. This was not a wise move. The Drevlians were outraged and captured Prince Igor. They murdered him in a very brutal way. 
according to Byzantine historian Leo the Deacon. They had bent down two birch trees to the prince's feet and tied them to his legs. Then they let the trees straighten again, thus tearing the prince's body apart. Victorious, the Drevlians sent an entourage of 20 men on a boat to the city of Kiev. They informed Olga that they had slain her husband and demanded that she marry his murderer, their own prince, Mal. As Olga's son, Svetislav, was only two years old, this would put both Olga and Svetislav under the Drevlians' control and they would rule the Kievian Rus. Olga greeted the diplomats warmly and responded to their demands. Your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead. But I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, We will not ride on horses nor on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. The ambassadors believed that this was a great honor, like being carried in a palanquin. Olga's people picked up the boat and carried it into her court, where the entire boat, ambassadors and all, were thrown into a large, deep pit, which had been dug the night before on Olga's orders. The men trapped inside the boat were buried alive. As Olga's people filled the pit with earth, the Drevlians screamed and cried for mercy. The princess bent down and inquired whether they found the honor to their taste. Olga sent a message to Prince Mal, saying that she would be happy to marry him, but she was insulted that he had sent mere peasants the first time and demanded that he send his highest-ranking men to honor her. Unaware of the fate which had befallen the first delegation, Mal complied and sent an entourage of governors to entreaty with his future bride. When the men arrived, Olga ordered that they must cleanse themselves in the bathhouse before she would grant them an audience. They were happy to wash the road dust off and proceeded to enjoy a warm bath. Very warm indeed, as once they were all inside, Olga ordered the doors locked and the bathhouse burned down. All the men inside were burned alive. Olga sent yet another message to the Drevlians, again asserting her willingness to marry her husband's killer, but saying that she must first honor and mourn Igor properly. She demanded of Prince Maul, prepare great quantities of mead in the city where you killed my husband, that I may weep over his grave and hold a funeral feast for him. The princess and her attendants arrived first at Igor's tomb. After weeping over her husband's bones, she directed her people to prepare a sumptuous feast. Prince Maul and his men arrived to the party, and Olga's retinue served them generously, making sure that their cups never ran dry of the copious funeral mead. Once the Drevlians were all passed out in a drunken stupor, Olga's people, who had not been imbibing, massacred them. Princess Olga egged on the bloodshed. 
According to the Primary Chronicle, 5,000 Drevlians were killed that night, but Olga's revenge was not yet complete. The Kievan Rus army surrounded the city of Iskorstein for a year. On the verge of starvation, the Drevlians surrendered to Olga and promised to give her whatever tribute she demanded, as long as she would leave them in peace. Olga responded that she understood the city was now beaten down and impoverished and she would have mercy upon them. She would order her army to leave if each household delivered her three pigeons and three sparrows. Relieved, the Drevlians delivered their aviary tribute. That night, Olga's people tied sulfur wrapped in cloth to each bird's leg. Then they set them free. Pigeons and sparrows are excellent homing birds. They each flew back to their nests in wooden dovecots and under thatched roofs throughout the city. Once warm inside their nests, the sulfur ignited, burning Escorosin to the ground. Olga's men rounded up and captured anyone who managed to escape the inferno and murdered or enslaved them. Olga's ruthless campaign of revenge reads more like a myth, a season of Game of Thrones, or a medieval Kill Bill reboot than actual history. And it may very well be more apocryphal than truthful. The bare facts historians are relatively sure of. Igor did demand additional tribute from the Drevlians and was murdered for it. And his widow, Olga, did lead a successful military campaign to force the Drevlians to submit to her and pay the demanded tribute. The gory details in between may or may not have actually happened. Once Olga was in charge of the Kievan Rus and acting as her three-year-old son's regent, she was an efficient and effective leader. She set up hunting grounds, boundary posts, towns, and trading posts all along the Kievan Rus empire. She established an administrative state to run her realm efficiently and reformed the system of collecting tribute, the cause of all her problems, in what may be regarded as the first legal reform recorded in Eastern Europe. Olga's work helped to centralize the state and unify a diverse Rus people. She had a policy of religious tolerance towards the growing number of Christians and Jews in her realm. Olga was the first female ruler of Kievan Rus, and the only female ruler described in the Primary Chronicle. Some years later, Princess Olga traveled to Constantinople to court a friendly relationship with her most important trade partner, Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII. The emperor was impressed and enthralled with the cunning and attractive widow. He praised her intellect, wisdom, and described her as very fair of countenance and worthy of ruling by his side. Olga responded to the unwanted flattery of this powerful ruler with yet more cunning. As she was a pagan and he a Christian, she said that she was willing to be baptized, but only if he did it himself, as she would not allow a lesser man the honor. Constantine called for the Patriarch of Constantinople to baptize her as a Christian the very next day, and the Emperor stood as her godfather. Olga was given the Christian name Helena after Constantine's own mother. 
Olga studied the Christian faith with the patriarch, who said of her, Blessed art thou among the women of Rus, for thou hast loved the light and quit the darkness. The sons of Rus shall bless thee unto the last generation of thy descendants. He instructed her in the doctrine of the church, in prayer and fasting, in almsgiving, and in the maintenance of chastity. She bowed her head, and like a sponge absorbing water, she eagerly drank in his teachings. After Olga's conversion, Constantine proposed marriage. Such a union would have stripped Olga of her hard-won power, and put Kivian Rus under the control of the Byzantine Empire. Olga responded to her suitor, How can you marry me after you baptized me and called me your daughter? For among Christians, that is unlawful, as you yourself must know. Emperor Constantine responded, Olga, you have outwitted me. He made peace with her and presented her with lavish gifts of gold and silk. She promised to send gifts back to the emperor when she returned to Kiev. Sometime later, Constantine wrote to Olga, inquiring when he might receive his promised gifts, to which she replied that she would be glad to send them once he spent as much time in her realm as she had spent in his. Now a Christian convert, Olga destroyed some pagan idols in accordance with Christian law, but declined to persecute pagans and non-Christians in her realm. She inquired of her teenage son, Svatislav, if he wanted to be baptized. But he declined, not wishing to lose the support of the majority pagan population. When the prince turned 21, Olga stepped back and allowed her son to take over the reins of power. Like his ancestors, Svatislav was often away on military campaign, though he was much more successful than his father had been. When away, he left his mother in charge of the realm. Svatislav earned the nickname the Brave by conquering a number of cities and people along the Danube River. He wanted to bring all of the Rus and Bulgar people under one empire. He conquered the city of Piriutslavets on the mouth of the Danube in present-day Romania. He moved his court there, leaving Kiev vulnerable to attack. Sure enough, the Pechneg people laid siege to Kiev. Olga was trapped there with her grandsons, unable to send word to her son and ask him to return with the army. On the verge of starvation, Olga contemplated surrender, but just then a young Rus man who knew the Pechneg language came forward with a plan. He snuck into the army's encampment with a bridle and wandered around pretending to search for his lost horse. The Pechnegs assumed he was one of their own until he jumped into the Dnieper River and began to swim away. They realized his deception and began shooting at him, but he escaped. The young man managed to get a message from Olga to Svetislav. In it, she informed him of Kiev's desperate situation and berated him for neglecting his duty to his family and his people. The prince made haste to march the army back to Kiev, fight off the Pechnegs, and rescue the city of Kiev and his mother and children. 
Once peace had been restored, Svatislav was eager to return to the Danube region, as he felt it was more strategically located, with better access to trade routes. But Olga, whose health was failing, did not want to be parted from her son again. She said to him, You behold me in my weakness. Why do you desire to depart from me? Svatislav promised to remain with her until her death, which occurred three days later. She was somewhere between 44 and 79. The Chronicle recounts, Her son wept for her with great mourning, as did likewise her grandsons and all the people. They thus carried her out and buried her in her tomb. Olga did not wish to have a pagan funeral feast. If the legends about her revenge spree are to be believed, she may have been thinking on the bloody outcome of her husband's funeral feast. But more likely, she preferred funeral rites to be performed in accordance with her new Christian faith. Though Svatislav did not approve, he heeded his mother's request and had a priest perform the rites. Olga's tomb remained in Kiev for 200 years, but was destroyed by a Mongolian Tartar invasion in 1240. Though Olga's attempts to Christianize Kievian Rus had failed, her grandson, Vladimir, who had been raised at her knee, officially adopted Christianity in 988 and converted the kingdom. Nevertheless, the primary chronicle gives Olga much credit for introducing the faith to the Kievian Rus. Olga was the precursor of the Christian land, even as day spring precedes the sun and as the dawn precedes the day. For she shone like the moon by night, and she was radiant among the infidels like a pearl in the mire. Since the people were soiled and not yet purified of their sin by holy baptism, but she herself was cleansed by sacred purification, she was the first from the Rus to enter the kingdom of God, and the sons of Rus thus praise her as their leader, for since her death she has interceded with God on their behalf. The Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church Eastern Orthodox Church and Ruthenian Greek Catholic Church all call Olga by the honorific Isapostolos, equal to the Apostles. The Catholic Church and the Roman Orthodox Church have both canonized her as a saint. She is the patron to widows and converts. Numerous churches and monuments across Ukraine honor Saint Olga, Grand Princess of Kiev. Ad revenue from this video will be donated to Save the Children's Ukrainian Crisis Relief Fund. This fund is helping to provide children and families endangered and displaced by the conflict in Ukraine with immediate aid, including food, water, and hygiene kits. To give, please click the link in the description. If you enjoyed this video, please like, subscribe, comment your thoughts, and check out my other royal history videos. If you really want to help, please consider supporting me on Patreon. A link is in the description. Thank you for watching. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Queens of Europe Jadwiga the female king of Poland. Jadwiga of Poland was crowned at the age of 10. She grew wise beyond her years and was forced to make a difficult decision about who to marry. Though she reigned for only 15 years, she did a great deal of good and is considered one of the greatest monarchs in Polish history. Jadwiga, or Hedwig as she is known in German, was born in 1373 or 74. She was the youngest of three children, all daughters of King Louis I of Hungary and Poland, and Elizabeth of Bosnia. Jadwiga was named for her distant ancestor, Saint Hedwig of Zelesia, who was greatly exalted at the time. As King Louis had no sons, he championed the rights of his daughters to succeed him and made his nobles swear oaths of loyalty to them. Therefore, the three heiresses of great expectation became particularly attractive brides. The plan was for the eldest Catherine to inherit Hungary, the second Mary, Poland, and since there was nothing left for the youngest, Jadwiga would be part of a powerful marriage alliance with the Austrian Habsburg family who ruled the Holy Roman Empire. When she was a mere toddler, Jadwiga was betrothed to William of Habsburg, eldest son of Leopold III, Duke of Austria. When the princess was five, her sponsalia de futuro, or provisional marriage, to the eight-year-old William was celebrated, and it was promised that the children would consummate their marriage as soon as they reached maturity. Later that year, Jadwiga's eldest sister Catherine died at the age of seven. This made second sister Mary the heir to all. She was betrothed to Prince Sigismund of Luxembourg, and her father forced the Polish lords to swear loyalty to him as their future king. Five years later, King Louis died at the age of 56, and 11-year-old Mary was crowned King of Hungary, as there was no provision for a queen to be ruler. Her betrothed, Sigismund, was away in Poland on military campaign to quash a rebellion, and was not present at the coronation. But as soon as he heard the news, he began to make his way back to the Hungarian capital of Buda, demanding oaths of loyalty along the way. Mary's quick-witted mother, Elizabeth, was made regent for her daughter. 
She understood that the Hungarian people had no desire to be ruled by her daughter's foreign fiancé, and she knew that when he arrived, he would take power out of her hands. So she released the nobles from the vows they had been forced into by her husband, and instead demanded that they vow loyalty to her daughters, which they did. But the Polish nobles were a different matter. They were weary of the personal union between Poland and Hungary, and didn't believe a ruler living in Buda could give priority to the needs of the Kingdom of Poland. They demanded that their new king, Mary, move to Poland or they would elect their own ruler to replace her. Conveniently, Elizabeth did have two daughters, so she decided that her elder daughter Mary would remain in Hungary as monarch, and her younger daughter Jadwiga would travel to Poland to rule there. However, she was hesitant to send eight-year-old Jadwiga across the Carpathian Mountains without her, so she made excuses to delay her arrival. The Polish lords began to squabble and fight over other possible candidates for the throne. One powerful lord tried to enter the Polish capital of Kraków in order to seize the throne, but the people of the city barred the gates to him. Another demanded to be crowned king, but the archbishop refused to place the crown on his head. And everyone could agree that they did not want Prince Sigismund of Luxembourg as their king, as he and his army were still marching around southern Poland, raiding and pillaging small villages. After nearly two years of waiting and infighting, the General Assembly of Poland sent the Dowager Queen an ultimatum, either deliver their new monarch in two months or they would elect one themselves. Elizabeth could no longer delay and had to send her 10-year-old daughter across the mountains to take the throne. On October 16, 1384, Jadwiga arrived in Kraków and was crowned before a massive cheering crowd of both high and low-born people who greeted her with great affection. She was proclaimed King of Poland, though historians debate if this was to distinguish her as a regnant rather than a queen consort, or to block any future husband she might take from claiming the title of king himself. Either way, aside from the legend of Queen Wanda of the 8th century, Jadwiga was the first female ever to rule over Poland. Jadwiga had a handful of trusted advisors, picked for her by her mother to help her rule her new kingdom. But the bright, precocious, and exceptionally tall girl king quickly matured into her new role. She had an abundance of charm and kindness, which further endeared her to the court and her people. But as much as they adored their new ruler, they weren't keen to have her fiancé, William of Habsburg, come in and take over. They felt that the 14-year-old's Austrian kinsman could not or would not protect Poland's interests against its powerful neighbors, so they instead recommended that Jadwiga marry Duke Jugala of Lithuania. Jadwiga was not fond of this proposal. She liked William and was keen to marry him. He was also only a few years older than her, while Jugala was 35. Jugala was also a pagan who worshipped the old gods of the Baltic region. Jadwiga was a faithful Christian and was anguished at the thought of marrying a heathen. Jugaila sent envoys to Jadwiga to ask for her hand in marriage, but she delayed, saying that she must wait for the advice of her mother. Meanwhile, William's father, King Leopold, reminded everyone that the marriage between his son and Jadwiga had already been sealed in the eyes of God, and that they need only consummate their union for it to be legally binding. 14-year-old William set out for Krakow so that he could sleep with his 11-year-old wife and cement their union. Accounts vary as to whether or not the young couple actually got together. 
The romantic legend is that Polish nobles barred the castle gates to William, and Jadwiga took an axe and tried to break down the door in order to get to her husband. Some accounts state that William did enter Jadwiga's bedchamber one night, but was later dragged out by Polish nobles, who then tried to murder him. Yet another chronicler records that everyone knew Jadwiga and William had shared a bed for a fortnight. But whether or not the very young lovers actually consummated their marriage, in the end, William was forced out of the country by the Polish nobility. Duke Jugaila of Lithuania smoothed things over with his potential bride by offering that he and his kinsmen would convert to Catholicism if she would agree to marry him. He would also support any of his countrymen who wished to do the same. At the time, most Lithuanians were pagan, so this was a big opportunity to spread Christianity. Jugaila also offered 200,000 florins in compensation to the jilted William of Habsburg, who refused the gift and instead recruited the Teutonic Knights to invade Lithuania. The Teutonic Knights were a Germanic religious and military order which aided pilgrims to the Holy Land and established hospitals. They weren't particularly happy about a pagan potentially marrying the monarch of Poland. A distraught Jadwiga went to the Bishop of Krakow to ask his advice about whether or not she should accept Jugaila's proposal. The bishop advised her that marrying the Lithuanian and therefore bringing Christianity to his people would be a priceless offering for the Christianization of Europe. According to legend, Jadwiga prayed before a black crucifix, and the figure of Christ on the cross spoke to her and said that she should indeed marry Jugaila. And so she accepted her suitor, who came to Krakow, where he was baptized and given the Christian name Władysław after a previous king of Poland. He requested that Jadwiga's mother Elizabeth adopt him as her own son so that he would have a direct claim on the Polish throne, just in case Jadwiga should die. Three days later, 35-year-old Władysław Jugaila married 12-year-old Jadwiga and he was declared king and lord of Poland. From then on, the couple ruled as co-monarchs in a personal union between the kingdoms of Poland and Lithuania. The two nations would be united under one crown for the next 400 years. But Jadwiga didn't simply hand over power to her husband. She remained the primary monarch of Poland and Jugaila the primary in Lithuania. Despite their age difference and the fact that they did not speak a common language at first, the newlyweds got along fairly well, and over time developed a deep attachment and respect for one another. They traveled around Poland together to appease the local lords who were still hostile to Jugaila. On their journey, Jadwiga gave generously to the poor. Pope Urban VI sent a representative to investigate the unusual marriage, and he proclaimed the union legal in the eyes of the church. But the Teutonic Knights weren't satisfied. They still wanted William of Habsburg as king and began a propaganda campaign slandering Jogaila. William beseeched the Pope that he was Jadwiga's rightful husband and the rightful king as their marriage had indeed been consummated. The Pope rejected William's petition, as he had already recognized the validity of the marriage, and of course his holiness could not admit to having been wrong. But this was not enough to stop the protests of William and the Teutonic Knights. Jadwiga was finally forced to make a public oath before all the lords of Poland that she had come to Jogaila a virgin and had only ever slept with him. 
They accepted her oath and swore loyalty to Yogaila, soundly rejecting William. Meanwhile in Hungary, things were not going well for Jadwiga's mother Elizabeth and sister Mary. King Charles III of Naples had invaded and forced Mary off the throne. Elizabeth made an offer of peace and support to Charles and invited him to meet her in her apartments. When Charles arrived, she had him stabbed to death by her servants. With her daughter back on the throne, Elizabeth breathed a sigh of relief, but she recognized the dangerous position they were in, so invited Mary's betrothed, Sigismund of Luxembourg, to come to Hungary, marry Mary, and become her co-ruler. While the mother and daughter were on their way to meet Sigismund, they were ambushed by King Charles's widow, Margaret of Durazzo. Mother and daughter were imprisoned, and Elizabeth pleaded with Margaret that Charles's murder had been all her own doing. She begged Margaret to spare her daughter's life. The vengeful widow showed mercy to Mary, but not to Elizabeth, who was strangled in front of her daughter. Sigismund finally arrived five months later and defeated Margaret's forces. He set his fiancée free and had Elizabeth's body exhumed from the secret grave she'd been laid in and given the funeral of a queen. Sigismund officially took Mary as his bride and took all of her political power as well. Though they were technically co-rulers, they were nowhere near equals as Jadwiga and Jogaila were. Sigismund wasn't much of a fan of his new ex-pagan brother-in-law and began negotiations with the still-salty Teutonic Knights to invade Poland and divide it between them. The two royal sisters, Jadwiga and Mary, now in their late teens, met for the first time in nearly a decade in an attempt to smooth things over between their two countries. Sigismund, spoiling for a fight, turned his attentions to Moldovia and then Wallachia. He invaded both and forced their rulers to swear loyalty to him. But as soon as he left, they both turned around and promised to support Jadwiga and Jogaila against Sigismund. In 1395, Mary was thrown from her horse and died. Even more tragically, she was pregnant at the time. And since Jadwiga was her sister's legal heir, this meant that she was now the rightful ruler of Hungary. Jadwiga gathered support for her claim to the throne from some of the Hungarian nobles. This new leverage put her in a strong position to negotiate with Sigismund, and eventually an agreement was reached. Jadwiga took the title heir to Hungary, but otherwise backed down from her claim and allowed Sigismund to retain control of Hungary, and he backed down from his plans to take over Poland. What's more, the two kings agreed to join forces against the threat of the Teutonic Knights, and together they were able to get them to agree to a peace treaty. Jadwiga was passionate about aiding the poor and spent much of her personal wealth on founding hospitals. She was deeply religious and also founded dozens of churches, and promoted the use of the Polish language in church services and hymns, and the translation of the Bible, so that her people could hear and read the Word of God in their own tongue. She patronized many writers and artists, and sponsored the restoration of Krakow University, which was partly funded by the sale of her jewelry. At the age of 25, Jadwiga became pregnant for the first time, and she and Jogaila were overjoyed. Lavish gifts, including a silver cradle, were sent for the new baby from monarchs around Europe. Jadwiga gave birth to a daughter, 
possibly prematurely, whom she named Elizabeth Bonifacia, after her mother and the new Pope, Boniface IX. But the baby only lived for three weeks. Jadwiga too was in ill health after the delivery, most likely suffering from childbed fever. The high and low throughout Poland prayed for the recovery of their monarch, who was the spiritual mother of the poor, weak, and ill. But the death of her daughter weakened Jadwiga's spirit. Four days after the baby passed, Jadwiga embraced her beloved husband for the final time. She advised him to marry Anne of Sili, granddaughter of Casimir the Great, a former king of Poland, as this marriage would strengthen his claim to remain on the Polish throne and prevent the nobles from fighting over it. Then Jadwiga, Poland's first female king, died on July 17, 1399. Jadwiga and her infant daughter were buried together in Wawel Cathedral. Heartbroken, Jogaila left Poland and returned to Lithuania, but the Polish lords followed him there and asked him to return as their king. He agreed to marry Anne of Sili and ruled over Poland for a further 35 years during a golden age in the nation's history. Jadwiga has long been venerated in Poland as one of their greatest rulers and the most Christian queen. In 1997, Pope John Paul II, himself a Pole, canonized Jadwiga as a saint. Her feast day is February 28th. She is credited with three miracles in her lifetime, seeing a vision of Christ speaking to her when he advised her to marry Jogaila and bring Christianity to Lithuania, bringing a drowned boy back to life by covering him with a cloak, and leaving a footprint in already set plaster after giving a poor stonemason a gold buckle from her shoe to feed his hungry family. The venerated footprint is still visible and lovingly preserved in the Church of the Visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Krakow. If you enjoyed this video, please like, subscribe, comment your thoughts, and check out my other royal history videos. If you really want to help, please consider supporting me on Patreon. A link is in the description. Thank you for watching! If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new episodes every Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, unburying some of my favorite hidden gems, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's history, and more. You can also follow History Tea Time on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like Queen's Podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, Redacted History, and more. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? 
Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.